How about now? Okay, sorry, my fault. Let's try that again. Good morning. So glad you're with us this morning in our larger gathering on our campus. Uh, I, love, I love coming to a place and worshiping Jesus with his people. I love the sound system. I love the worship team. I love the fact that the spirit of the Lord is here. Amen? Amen. Let me tell you where it's also at. <laughs> right? It's, he's also in our homes with the people of God as we share life together. So last weekend we were in City Group Sunday. This weekend, we're in our larger family gathering. Next Sunday, we'll be in City Group Sunday. And I want to just give you a quick understanding, make sure we're all on the same page. There's a reason we're doing this, not just to try something new. The Bible says in Acts 2 that the people of God worshiped, spent time together, took communion, prayed together. They, they, they come under the apostles' teaching, but they also met in the temple. So there was this element of a both and, kind of a, a both of a larger gathering where we can worship together and we can enjoy the things of God as a larger family. But see, the problem is in the American church, in many ways, we've made that all that church is, just the large gathering. And I'll pick a church based on, do I like the speaker? Do I like the music? Do I like the atmosphere? Do I like the campus? Friends, that's not the church. Yeah, do I like the coffee, right? That's not the church. In, in that way, that, those are some of the most shallow aspects of what the church can be. What do we see as the church? In the New Testament church, it's about life together, life on life, making disciples, being on mission together, right? And so what we're trying to do as a church to give equal value to the large gathering where we love this together, but also equal value to life together. That's the reason we're doing what we're doing. So continue to pray with us for what God is doing in our church. I'm so excited about it. And I love both gatherings. My heart gets excited each week, depending on what, what we're going to do and where we're going to be. And I love it. You know, we've been in a study of the book of Mark for the last, this is the 32nd message. So we've been here a little while. And, and for the last couple of weeks, we've noticed that Jesus has turned his gaze to Jerusalem. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we got a sense that Jesus is even sort of leading the crowd, said he was out front. And you get the sense that he's pulling the disciples along with him. He's like, we're headed this way. Come on, let's go. Why? Because Jesus has a mission. He's following the plan of God. He's going to the cross, and he will not be deterred. There's no, nothing that will keep him from it. And so we see that none more than today's text in the Gospel of Mark. This story today is one that is uh, usually taught on what we call Palm Sunday, even though a lot of theologians believe that the events of our text today happened on Monday. We, cel we celebrate it a lot on Sunday. <laughs> uh, we call it Palm Sunday, or some, some people call it the triumphal entry of Jesus. But the reality is if we look closely, that what is so triumphant in that entry is, is not so much. It's, it's, it's what I'm calling a paradox today, because what seems to be so triumphant and wonderful in reality of the hearts of the people who are lifting up Jesus, it is not so much. And we're going to take a look at that in our text today. It's an important story. Uh, a lot of our stories are in at least three of the Synoptic Gospels. This story today is in all four Gospels. 
This is an important one, and, and the Lord is wanting us to show different perspectives. All the sports fans out there, when you see a, when we have a, uh, a call that you disagree with, all you can see on screen is, you know, what you see. He's, he's almost out of bounds, and what do they do? They go to a different camera option, right? And you go, oh, yep, he was out of bounds. He gives more clarity. That's what the different perspectives of different gospels do for us. So as we study the book of Mark, if we have the same story in other gospels, let's look at those other gospels and see if it gives us a more complete picture of the story. And so we're going to look at that today. In fact, in, in some way or another, all four of the gospels of Jesus. This is a moment where it's a little different than what we've seen in the ministry of Jesus. And you'll know what I'm talking about. As we study the book of Mark, we see Jesus doing things um, like casting demons out of people. And then he tells them, don't tell anybody, right? Remember? Don't, don't go say this to anyone. Even when, when Jesus is reprimanded by, by Peter, and Peter comes to him and says, you are the Christ. The next thing Jesus says, don't tell anyone. There's also a moment in the Gospels that, that says after Jesus feeds the 5,000, that he has to slip away because he knew that the crowd wanted to come and make him king, force him to be king. So he had to slip away. It wasn't time. He wasn't ready. That changes today. Him saying, don't tell anyone, it changes today. Him beginning to receive worship as Messiah, it begins to change today in our story. I think Jesus knows this is going to provoke the Pharisees, <laughs> and then some, right? He knows that this is going to begin to play out the events of the passion of the Christ. The trials, the torture, and ultimately his death on the cross, and gloriously his resurrection from a tomb. So that's, these, these things are beginning to play out uh, as we see them in front of us. The thing is, is as, as Jesus, we're going to see in a minute, comes down this mountain, we do this in most of our churches on Palm Sunday. We begin to sing songs like, Hosanna in the highest, right? We worship Jesus as Hosanna in the highest. We say things like, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we, we do it with a triumphant heart and yes, he's our king and we're excited. And it's, it's a good thing. But the reality is that the crowd on this day that Jesus is making their way, he's making his way down to Jerusalem, their hearts are fickle. Their hearts do not truly mean Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Or at least it's conditional. And I want to talk about that in just a minute. You know, I was watching online because I didn't watch it in the time it happened. But just last month they had the coronation of King Charles III. Did you see that? Or read about that? It's fascinating to me. This monarchy, this, this incredibly important moment, it didn't really do anything for me. But, but uh, you're watching history in this way, in some significant way. Millions of dollars are being spent on this man and on this event. There's so much tradition. There's so many official prayers and VIPs from around the world. And, and there's events going on for weeks, who knows, before this happens. But there's this moment that I wanted to show you right before King Charles is crowned king. He, he gets the, he gets the uh, crown on his head. And the man, the gentleman, steps away from him and he says... God save the king. And the whole room, the whole audience echoes, God save the king. 
I got chills. I was like, whoa, that felt something, right? All for this human king of a pretty big area. 52 countries are represented under that crown. But he's not the king of kings. In fact, he's like this compared to the king of kings. And yet all the pomp and regalia, all the things that go on in this moment that seem so important, and yet it's the juxtaposition of Jesus now riding down a mountain on a donkey, on a dusty road with 12 guys who are pretty clueless, right, behind him, right? That's his army behind him, these 12 men who don't really get it, and we see it over and over again. And a people worshiping him who don't get it, and they worship him rightly as king, but not sincerely as Lord. Daniel Aiken, in his book, he says, Muhammad rode into Mecca on a war horse surrounded by 400 mounted men and 10,000 foot soldiers. Those who greeted him were absorbed into his movement. Those who resisted him were vanquished, killed, or enslaved. Muhammad conquered Mecca and took control of its new religious, political, and military, as their new political and military leader. Jesus, on the other hand, entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Not quite the war horse. Accompanied by his 12 disciples. He was welcomed and greeted by people waving palm fronds, which is the traditional sign of peace, not war. So what seems to be an amazing triumphant moment, in reality, may not quite be that. It's a paradox. Let's look at the story today. If you have your Bibles, Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, remember they're coming from Jericho, 10 or 15 miles away, and they're, they're entering the top of uh, Mount, the Mount of Olives. He says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and, and Bethany, at uh, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door, outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, that, uh, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and, he threw, and they threw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Blessed, uh, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Pray with me this morning as we get into God's word. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for the privilege to gather in this large gathering to sing together, to hear each other sing, to sing over one another, to learn from your word. God, to encourage one another, to pray for your work in and through us and around our city and around the world. What a privilege. God, I pray that you'd help us to understand your word today. I pray with all of my heart that your Holy Spirit would lead us to all truth. 
that I would decrease in this time and that you would increase and that you would help us to know your heart, your, your will, your plan and give us the courage to be obedient to it. Oh God, we love you with all we are. Forgive us where we fail you. Bless this time in your word, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I want to look at three things this morning in the text, okay? The first one is this. Jesus follows the plan and the prophecy of God. He, he, he is following God's plan. We've said this before. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the earth, right? That's the plan of God. He is making his way to Jerusalem because that's the plan of God. But he's also fulfilling many prophecies along the way. The Bible tells us there's over 300 prophecies of Messiah in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills every prophecy in the Old Testament. And we're going to see him do some of that as well today. He's only a few days from his crucifixion. So this is a pertinent moment, as you can imagine. Uh, the top of the Mount of Olives, I had the privilege of being there 14 or so years ago. I took a picture I wanted to show you. It's from the, that area, a little further from the Mount of, from Bethany, but just kind of overlooking the Mount, overlooking the, the old city of Jerusalem. As they move closer this way, you get closer to Bethany, but, but I wanted you to just kind of get a little perspective maybe of what even uh, the disciples and Jesus w would see. And of course, as they get closer and closer, it just becomes closer. The, the old city of Jerusalem is, is really only about a mile from Bethany. It's about 200 feet above the old city. So you get to stand above it and, and take in almost the whole old city at the top of the Mount of, of Olives. And you can just go right down the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane and to the Kidron Valley up to uh, Mount Zion where David is and buried and, and the, uh, the upper room. It's just phenomenal. I highly encourage you to go to the uh, Holy Land if you ever can. But Jesus and his disciples start getting close to some place that looked similar to that, right? Overlooking the city. And there's two cities they're approaching, Bethphage and Bethany. The disciples were probably getting excited because they loved spending time in Bethany. This is the hometown of Lazarus, whom we know he raised from the dead, right? And his sisters, Mary and Martha. They spent a lot of time there. John 11 tells us that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so this is just... This is homecoming for these guys. As they get close, they can probably smell the food. Oh, I know Martha. She's a good cook. Mary, not so much. But Martha, right? She's a great cook, moving closer to Bethany. Can't wait to eat. Can't wait to rest. It says, this is a good thing. This is family. But the text also puts in this other city, Bethphage. And Jesus, again, focused on the plan of God and the prophecy Fulfilling those prophecies. He says to his disciples, hey, you two, we don't know which two, go into one of these cities. And he gives them these specific directions. Look at it with me. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Can I just tell you something? Uh, and I was going to call my dad and get some cowboy uh, wisdom here from him. But I think this is true. You don't normally sit on a, on a colt of a donkey if it hadn't been broken. Right, Dad? Unless you created that donkey. Keep that in mind. Immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied and on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. 
If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and you will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus said, and they let them go. In other words, the owner of the colt must have known Jesus. Bethany would have known Jesus, especially after Lazarus uh, being raised from the dead, right? And they even used the phrase, the Lord has need of it, which means they knew Jesus wasn't just Jesus. He was the Lord. So they allow him to use it. And I love that Jesus says, I'll bring it back. I <laughs> love that. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So, so Jesus is moving forward with the plan, the will of God to redeem the world. And as he does so, he's fulfilling prophecies. And this is one of those prophecies. Now, before we get into the prophecy, I just got to tell you what's on my mind. As I read this, I, I'm, I'm kind of blown away. And if you read, especially the Gospels, you may miss little moments like this. But I want us to pause just for a moment and take a look at the amazing nature of Jesus, the Messiah, God incarnate, right? Look what he does. He, he predicts what's about to happen in this village. You see that? He, he knows play by play, word for word, what's going to happen. And I just started thinking, wait a minute. Either Jesus can see into the future and knows what's happening and hears what's happening, hears the question, knows how to respond to it, or there's so much power in the words of Jesus that as he speaks them, the future will be obedient to the king of kings. I don't know. But it happens exactly the way Jesus says it's going to happen. Friends, that's not something to just rush past. What's going on in your life this morning? What, what problem do you have this morning? What crisis is facing you this morning? Can I encourage you? God sees it. God's in control of it. God knows about it. He has allowed it for his glory and your good. What is it? I, I, I'll tell you, I, I personally have about three or four things on my heart this morning that can be fairly devastating that I'm struggling with. But God sees it and I'm not afraid because he's in control, Right? Jesus is God. Don't rush past this omnipresence, omni, omniscient ability of our Savior. He is God. So they go, they find exactly what Jesus said to find. They bring the cult back to him. And I think an obvious uh, application point is that God is in control of every detail of our lives. Right? He's in control, friends. Colossians 1 says... He holds it all together. So whatever it is you're facing, whatever problem you're dealing with, put your hope and your faith in the one who sees it, the one who knows, the one who controls it. Jesus is fulfilling a very specific prophecy from Zechariah 9.9 this morning in our text. One of the other parallel gospels, as, as Matthew is telling this story, he says that Jesus actually speaks this prophecy, in other words, which I love, because in other words, Jesus gives directions to the disciples to go find the donkey, and then he speaks the prophecy, as if to say, go find that donkey, oh yeah, and that's a prophecy I'm about to fulfill right now, right? He actually speaks it. This is what it says. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is the prophecy given of Messiah, and Jesus is now speaking of that prophecy and fulfilling it in the presence of his followers. It's an amazing moment. This is also a sign to those paying attention, this is Messiah. If you hadn't figured that out, Jesus is Messiah, right? To all the people that are looking on, this is Messiah. We need, to, we need to worship him as such. And you know what? They do. They do. The disciples begin to throw their cloaks on the back of this donkey. Riding bareback is no fun, can I tell you? It's not. It's uncomfortable. And so people start throwing their cloaks. They're taking them off and throwing them on the back of the donkey. Well, the people around who are worshiping Jesus as Messiah begin to join suit, and they, they begin to take their cloaks, and they say, well, if he's Messiah... If he's king, they put him on the ground. They lay these cloaks on the ground. They begin to worship him as such. And as they come down this mountain, theologians believe there are as many as 100,000 people on this little mile, mile and a half stretch from Bethany to Jerusalem. Camped out all over the city for Passover. That's the reason they're there. Okay? But one of the reasons they've come to Bethany now, and you can begin to feel a shift of power from the Pharisees and the temple, you begin to feel a shift of power, move towards Jesus and even Lazarus. This is what the text tells us in Matthew. Because the Pharisees want Jesus dead, we knew that already, but now we also see they want Lazarus dead too, right? Lazarus is going, I'm alive. It's hard to argue with, uh, with a, a walking person who was dead for four days, right? Kind of a testimony to this real power. So they want them both dead. They also want to see. So they're in town for Passover. They hear about Jesus. They hear about this miracle. Well, we got to see that. It's only a mile walk up this mountain. Let's go. And they begin to go to Bethany. And so now there's this huge crowd around Bethany to see the Messiah who has raised someone from the dead. Second thing I want us to see is Jesus is worshiped as king and conqueror. Verse 8 says, And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So there's this spectacle beginning to happen. First cloaks on the donkey, then cloaks on the ground. Well, I don't have a cloak. I'm going to go get a palm branch out of the field, and I'm going to lay it down because I want to submit to Messiah. That's what you're saying. If, if the cloak goes on the ground, if the palm branches go on the ground, you're saying, I am beneath you. You are king. You are sovereign. You are Messiah. And we are beneath you. So we lay this down and let the, the animal walk on the covering of the ground. Now there is a problem here a little bit. And this is where we begin to enter the paradox. Because in the prophecy in Zechariah 9, Jesus speaks of this, this prophecy of him riding in on a donkey as Messiah, right? But if you take a look at the rest of Zechariah 9, it speaks of Messiah doing some other things, like making war. And bringing peace. Well, 
in those days, they had no way to differentiate Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. Because though Jesus is entering Jerusalem on a donkey, there will be a day he's on a war horse. Right? Even though he's humble now, in this position, seeming weakness in a way, one day he will ride in on strength. But they can't differentiate that. We have the whole counsel of God's word. We can begin to see that a little bit more. So they're thinking Jesus, Messiah, is about to vanquish the Romans. We're going to be free. Isn't that what Zechariah 9 says? And so there's just conflation of, of this chapter together and a misunderstanding altogether about what Messiah means. People begin to make their own definition of what Messiah means, and we are guilty of the same thing. I'll get into that in just a minute. The city normally would run maybe 50,000 people, so very small, the old city especially. But at Passover, theologians believe it would swell to two or three times that number. So there may be 180,000 people throughout Jerusalem, and as many, maybe as 100,000 on this road up to see Jesus and Lazarus. These people worship Jesus as Messiah. They do. But it's their definition of Messiah, and it's a temporary worship. They sing songs that they would sing every Passover. They, they would sing songs that, that, that they would remember because they sing it every year. And the song of Hosanna and blessed is he who comes, that comes from a text. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26 says that very thing. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord. Which, by the way, is the translation of the Hebrew word, Hosanna. Okay? That is the translation. It, it, save us now, save us, we pray. That is the, the Hebrew uh, translation uh, of that word. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, they sang this song every year as a remembrance. Again, what time is it? It's Passover. And so they're celebrating the, the deliverance of their mighty God who delivered the people of God from the grip of Pharaoh. He delivered them, right? And they sing songs of deliverance. And now, rightfully so, they sing songs of deliverance to the Messiah. So it's rightly placed worship because he was Messiah and he was king. But it's temporary and fickle. And false in their hearts. Jesus will, in fact, save his people and deliver them from their sin. But those who are worshiping their definition of Messiah, they want deliverance from Rome, not from sin. Jesus, as he's coming down the mountain, is interrupted by some Pharisees, and this comes from the parallel gospel of Luke, chapter 19. I love what happens in this little exchange. Verse 39 says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Will you shut them up? They're calling you Messiah. They're calling you God. You're going to let them do that? What does Jesus say? I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. Again, the paradox, right? The, 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 the thing is, is, Jesus is omniscient. 
He's over and in control as creator of a donkey that ought to buck him off, but it doesn't because he is submissive to his creator. And even the rocks themselves, if those people don't worship him, even with the wrong heart, rightly placed worship as Messiah, those rocks would cry out. That's who he is. We begin to look at this paradox a little closer. A paradox, let me give you a definition of it. A seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. You imagine being the soldiers who place a crown of thorns on a weary, tortured, beat-up Jesus and, and a purple robe. It's called the king's game. And I had the privilege of standing in the very spot. There's something etched in the ground and it's called the king's game in the praetorium. This is where Jesus would have stood. And they worshipped him as king, though they didn't believe he was king. The paradox is he was, right? That's what's happening in this moment. Jesus is being worshipped as Messiah, and yes, he is Messiah, but not the one they wanted. Jesus is worthy of praise and worship but not just for a few days at a surface level. Jesus will bring victory and salvation and peace, but not in the way they expected or hoped. I, I like this comparison from Daniel Aiken's book. I wanted to just, I just copied it out of the book and I wanted just to show you this morning. Hopefully I have it on screen. I wanted to just show you this comparison of Jesus' first coming and his second, can we? Because there's a big difference. Look here. In his first coming, he came to die. His second coming, he's coming to reign. First coming, he comes on a little donkey. The second coming, he comes on a war horse. The third, he comes as a hum- the, the first coming, he comes on a humble, as a humble servant. The second coming, he comes as an exalted king. This first coming in weakness, the second in power. First to save, second to judge. First he came in love, the second he will come in wrath. The first he comes as deity veiled, uh, he will come as deity revealed in the second coming. The first coming, whether they get it or not, he comes with his disciples. Second coming, he will come with an army of angels. First coming, he comes to bring peace, but the second coming, he will come and make war. The first, he's given a crown of thorns. The second, he will be given the crown of royalty. The first, he comes as a suffering servant and we know on that war horse and tattooed on his, on his thigh will be king of kings and lord of lords. Quite a difference from the first coming and the second coming. And they're confused about what's supposed to take place. And can I tell you, it's dangerous when you begin to define who Jesus is apart from God's word as a whole. It's dangerous, friends. Aiken says, the prophecy was not being fulfilled in the way they thought, hoped, and believed it would be. They're right. He is their king, but he is not here to purge Israel of foreign domination. No, he is here to purge his people of their sin. They're looking and longing for a temporal, political, and military savior. He, however, is bringing what only he can bring, a complete and eternal salvation of body and soul. They want and expect a savior only for Jews, but he is the savior for the whole world, for any and all who will believe on his name. 
And so we see a paradox at play. Here's the third thing I want you to see. As Jesus rides down from the Mount of Olives into the old city of Jerusalem, he enters Jerusalem not as a king receiving extravagant worship. Can you imagine from 100,000 people? I, the, I used to sing on stages for a living, and the, the most that I can remember being in front of me was 100,000 people. It was for a, uh, a, an event before a football game at Brigham Young University, and there were 100,000 people in, those, in those, that place. Like, can you just imagine the overwhelming crowd? And they're, they're singing, they're shouting of you as king, but he's not receiving that as king. You wouldn't see. I mean, any other scenario of the coronation of any king of any nation, that would be the best day of their life, don't you think? I mean, they would be taking it in. They would be looking at mom. We did it, mom, right? I mean, they just, everything you can think of would just be the most full of pride and joy and strength. That's not what we see in Jesus. Look with me in the parallel gospel of this story. As he rides down, Jesus hearing the superficial worship of the people surrounding him, who in four days will change their tune, literally. From Hosanna in the highest to crucify, crucify, crucify. Luke 19, 41 says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Does that seem odd for a king being coronated? See, the truth is, friends, Jesus is not being coronated in this moment. There will be a day where he is coronated. And the Bible says in Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue confess and he will break through the sky and there'll be no question of who the king is. This is not God's coronation moment. This is a false, paradoxical coronation. And yet Jesus is Messiah. He rides down, says he drew near, saw the city and he wept over it saying, would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is speaking to the city but he's speaking specifically to the Pharisees and every single person that saw his miracles, saw the signs of Messiah and said, it's not him. And dismissed him. As well as all the people who worship their version of Messiah but don't know him. And in four days will give their vote to crucify him. This is a crazy moment. And you begin to feel the tension when you get all the views and all the pictures of what's happening here. Jesus wouldn't take in or celebrate in that moment. Instead, he weeps. Yes, it's true that he's the king. Yes, it's true that he's Messiah. But his mind and his heart is not on that. What's it on? It's on lost people. Do you see that? Isn't that interesting? In that 
loud, celebratory moment in Jesus' heart is on lost people. And he weeps, but he doesn't only weep, he also pronounces judgment. Those of you who know history, you know that that temple did come down along with every other stronghold that stands against the name of Jesus. That temple did come down the way he said it would in 70 AD, 32, 35 years after this moment, 37 years, we don't know exactly. But that temple did come down and Jesus said there won't be one stone on top of another. Complete devastation. He said you didn't know the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from you. They're hidden from your eyes. And at the end he says, you didn't know the time of your visitation. Right? In essence, he's saying, Messiah came to you. You rejected him. And now you have to face the devastating demise of the city, of the temple, your beloved temple. Every single stone torn down. I just got to ask this question that's on my heart this morning. Is that you? Have you seen God do what he does? Have you heard the truth of who Jesus is and yet you still go, I don't believe? Because friends, that's who Jesus wept over. Do you know him as your savior? Because the other aspect of this point is that there is judgment. And the judgment is if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you will die and go to hell. You need Jesus. You need his forgiveness. You need his mercy. And he offers it to you today in this age of grace. Pay attention, friend, before it's too late. This is an unbelievable moment to me. Honestly, this moment has haunted me this week. It's unbelievably sad to me that Jesus would ride down in all that praise and yet weep. Clearly, this is something in this text that is revealing the heart of God. We need to pay attention to this, right? We, we study in our DBS, our Discovery Bible study, hey, what does this show us, right, about God? So if we were doing a DBS this morning, we said, what does this show us about God in this moment? We would say, well, God's heart is broken for lost people, Right? God is saddened over people who don't see the truth of who he is. We would also say God brings judgment on those who don't surrender to Jesus. This is God's heart. And we see it at play through Jesus. Let's look at the last verse as I close. Kind of an anticlimactic verse and yet poignant as well. It says, and he entered Jerusalem. He finally gets there. There's no mention of 100,000 people. He enters Jerusalem and went into the temple. And I don't know why, but it just feels like maybe there's not a ton of people around. And when he looked around at everything, it was already late. So he went out to Bethany with the 12. And you could read through that and just go, okay, go to the next verse. But here Jesus has taken so long during the day to weave through a mile long of people that by the time he gets to the temple, 
Things are kind of shut down. But he takes some time to look around. And I just started trying to think, what is on the heart of Jesus in this moment? What's in his mind? Do you think he went to the place where he stood at 12 years old and he began to teach in a way that the teacher said, who is this kid? Or did he, did he go over to the place where they sacrifice the animals for the forgiveness of sin? Hebrews says there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. And he went to that place and he, he thought about all the animals and all the blood and the sacrifice and forgiveness. And he sat there and he thought, soon it will be me. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he's taking it into his heart. And then he gets back on that donkey and they ride right back up the hill to Bethany to keep a promise, right? To keep a promise. He got that, he got that donkey back. This text, friends, reminds me that Jesus, a couple of things here before we go. Jesus is faithful. He's faithful to fulfill the plan of God. We can trust in him because he's in control. He sees the details of our lives, the brokenness of the moment we're in at times where we're confused, we don't understand. God, he sees it. He knows it. He's, he's there in the future. In his omnipresence, we can rest. I just wonder about those two disciples after, again, another thing played out exactly the way Jesus said. As they went back, they're just like, I'm not worried about a thing. I mean, I just, would you worry about anything? And the question is, why do we? God is in control. He's got it. We can rest in that. This other aspect of this story, friends, for me, is a convicting one. And I've been convicted of my sin this week. In that we so often expect Jesus to do what we want him to do. We so often define Messiah the way we want to define Messiah. And so I'd ask you this question this morning. What Jesus do you worship? You worship the Catholic Jesus? Or some other religion Jesus? Or the Jesus your family has defined that may not mean that much, but okay, I better make the sign of the cross or I better pray occasionally. How have you defined Jesus? Because can I tell you, there's only one way that he must be defined, and that is from his word. The whole counsel of his word defines who Jesus is, and we look and we pay attention to his heart and we, we learn who he is. I ask this question of our hearts this morning. Is your worship fickle? Mine has been at times. In other words, you worship as long as it meets your approval. Isn't that what happened? We're going to see very soon. But they worshiped with all their heart. The Messiah even said, we're beneath you, but we're not surrendered to you. And so a few days later, they say, crucify him, crucify him. How often do we say, Lord, I'm along for the ride as long as I agree with it? Or maybe you've noticed it's a little warm in here. I'll go to church as long as that air conditioner is cranking in the summer. 
I love the little picture. I don't know if you've seen it on social media, and I don't even know what country it's in. It shows a group of, of people worshiping in a church, and they're waist deep in water. <laughs> and their hands are raised, and they're worshiping, going, oh, no, this won't keep me from worshiping my God. Is your worship fickle? Is it inauthentic? Is it temporary? Is it surface? Or are you truly surrendered to Jesus, the Messiah, King of kings and Lord of lords? That's the question you have to ask your heart this morning. I got I to mention this too just because it's on my heart. You know, many people have kind of bought into this Americanized version of the church. And I mentioned, I've talked about a little bit about this at the beginning of the service. And this Americanized version of the church is a lot of people think that church is only about what you go to. We go to a building, we go to a service. If I like it, don't like it, I'll decide whether I want to be a part of that thing. Right? That, that's sort of this Americanized version. Friend, look beyond our culture and look to God's word to define the church. We have to define the church by the New Testament. That's, that's why we use this phrase all the time, don't just go to a service, belong to a what? A family. The church is a family, and it's beautiful to worship all together, singing, and, and, and this beautiful place. I love the stained glass. There's so many things I love. But if I only do that and I never walk my life out with another believer in accountability and confession, then I'm not really living as a believer. I'm doing the same thing these people are doing, saying, oh, Jesus, Messiah, and then later going, crucify him. I have a wrong definition of the church. May South City understand the biblical New Testament definition of the church of Jesus. It's not about the most beautiful entertainment service. Sure, not about the best speaker, best worship, best sound system. We're not here to entertain you, friends. We're here to be the family of families of Jesus. And that means we don't eject. That means we don't go, I, I'm, uh, I'm not sure about. No, we're family. We dig deep. We're committed. We love. We do things in Scripture the Bible talks about like endure with one another. Or love covers a multitude of sins and we say I'm sorry to one another. And we submit ourselves in, in forgiveness and repentance to one another. We walk as humbly as we can with one another. We confess to one another. That's the body of Christ. That's the church of Jesus. And in sad realities, much of the American church has gotten away from those things, those one another's that matter so much. It's much like the paradox of our story, friends. In that what may be bigger may not be better. And our prayer is that what is authentic, what is maybe smaller, what is maybe simpler, that it actually may be creating deeper discipleship in your heart, moving you to the mission of God and the discipleship that he wants for your life. And lastly, before we go, we see the broken heart of Jesus over lost people. Does your heart break for lost people? Or does your experience of the church mainly revolve around you? May it not be. Yes, we love one another. Yes, we hold each other accountable. We, we care for one another. But we are on a mission 
Jesus has sent us to reach this world for him. And as we see Jesus weep coming down that mountain, may our hearts be broken for those that don't know Jesus. Here's the difference. He placed a judgment on them and said, it's too late. But for your neighbor, it's not too late. For your coworker, your family member, your child, it's not too late. Pray, seek the Lord, speak truth to them. Share the beautiful gospel of Jesus that they may come to know him as their savior. Be reminded from this text this morning, friends. God is in control. May we be his people who truly worship him as true Messiah, submitted to him, surrendering our lives to him, and may we have hearts that are broken for the lost. Would you pray with me? Jesus, We need you so desperately, Lord. We truly do. We need to be reminded, God, you are in control because every person in this building and watching this service has something they're concerned about, has something they're worried about, has something that seeks to take their attention off our faith and trust in you, but Lord, can we just sit back and know you are omniscient and omnipresent. You see it. You love us. You're with us. You're ahead of us. You're behind us. You're all over. We can rest in knowing you're in control, dear God. Father, may we submit our lives to you And may we throw down our figurative cloaks on the ground and say, God, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about you, Jesus. Help me to learn what it means to believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Help me learn what it means to live out life as the church of the Bible. Help me learn to to know what it means to be on mission with you, Lord Jesus, to the ends of the earth. And God, make us compassionate for those that don't know you. And let that be the why. Let that be more of our motivation to be obedient to you, Lord, because people need you, Jesus. And judgment is in fact coming. Father God, would you please meet us here today? in such a beautiful way that for those who are struggling with something, maybe they want to come to this altar and just lay it down. This summer of prayer, Lord, as we try to surrender our lives in more prayer than normal, extraordinary prayer, God, maybe this is the moment to do that. But Lord, would you help us just to be faithful to you, surrender to you, genuinely following you, Jesus. And we pray that you'd have your will in our lives this morning in Jesus' name.